Um, all right, so let's see. Uh, Nikki and JD, this is your first time. Um, I want to uh, just let you know kind of the format of what we do. It's, it's pretty conversational um, because basically like we're just going to go through, uh, we're going to do one tonight, maybe two, maybe. And we're just going to say, I'm just going to open the floor. I do not presume myself to be an expert on the subject any more than anybody else. Um, I just presume myself to be the conversation carrier if, you know, things go dry. So um, everybody, uh, I want to make sure this, like, this is what we call at my church, a sacred conversation. So we want to honor the, the voices in this room. And I also want to say just thanks for being here. So, uh, and it looks like everybody else is showing up here. So um, can I actually, I'm going to start by praying for us if that's all right. Um, Father, we come to you in the name of your son, Jesus. We come to you ushered by the Holy Spirit. We come to you, God, asking that your spirit would illumine our minds, but more than that, that your spirit would make our hearts tender, that um, we would be a people who are responsive to what we read here, not merely um, to just sort of cast blame elsewhere, but to in many cases, acknowledge our own complicity in these things. Ask us to be a people of repentance and then a people of prophetic conviction um, when we go forth and having learned these things to be a people who are um, brave enough to tell the truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so friends, um, we're just going to open up to chapter one. And I was just saying, uh, this is recorded, one. And number two, I'm tonight, so I may get up randomly and go um, put out some fires. If so, you all just keep conversing. Good? All right. So we're going to do chapter one. And uh, this is chapter one, saddling up. Um, anybody want to start off with what piqued their interest in this chapter? Uh, well, I'll start. How about this? Because I'm, I'm going to say uh, from the second paragraph, by the early 20th century, Christians recognized that they had a masculinity problem, unable to shake the sense that Christianity had a less than masculine feel. Many blamed the faith itself, or at least the feminization of Victorian Christianity, which privileged gentility, restraint, and an emotive response to the gospel message. Um, what does that mean? What, what is she saying there? What, what's the, what's the, what's the masculinity problem she's highlighting? And maybe where have you seen that, uh, either played out or, or, uh, or commented on? Well, maybe just that, like, the um, leadership of the, the broader church, I would say, at the time was probably largely masculine. Um, and so then you have them preaching on course content that doesn't align with their current perception of what masculinity should be outside of the church. And yeah. so... Um, 
I, it was interesting that she said that they recognized they had a mis- masculinity problem because I didn't hadn't thought of that, and I honestly might even disagree with her. I feel like there's a lot of lack of understanding that there's a masculinity problem, okay. <laughs> seeing as there are plenty of churches that still won't let in, in 2021 let women be on a pastoral team and think that they're playing quote-unquote playing church if they are the head pastor of a church so it's it's interesting that she started out with that but just that like yeah that what their values of masculinity were defined as at the time um don't necessarily align with when you look at like when you hear the words right out of Jesus's mouth like they don't align yeah, and I think I think what you're getting at is certainly a problem with masculinity, but I think it's a different problem than they think it is, right? That's that's sort of what she's saying is because I don't I don't think she disagrees that there is a masculinity problem. It's so as you said, it's how that masculinity problem is defined. Um, particularly, let me ask this question: What is happening? in the early 20th century that is causing this sort of fear about Christian masculinity? What's happening in this era? Well, you have a couple of things going on. Um, You have prohibition being one. Mm -hmm. Um, You have the social gospel becoming a thing, um, as well as you have some holiness and tent revival traditions popping up, which 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 are often led by women correct so you between some of those aspects um and the pushback particularly of those uh movements i would say you would see uh maybe perceived uh masculinity issue in that there's comes a like i guess a pushback on that yeah um so unpack for me what uh, you like the tie you seen between um, the prohibition and masculinity. Well, particularly at the point, there would have been very heavy usage of alcohol, and generally it would have been used by males at the time, which would have created uh, abuse at that point. And so prohibition would have been the response are trying to eliminate some of the abuse. So they would have made, they made uh, alcohol legal for a little while there. So therefore. So they were uh, attempting to solve the uh, problem of alcoholic abusive masculinity with an emphasis, a a certain definition of masculinity in the church. Right. Okay. Gina, you said industrialization of work. Unpack that please. I think these are, that's a great word, Matt, and I, I think all of these are going to kind of come together. Yeah, I mean, I think there's probably just a lot of things converging in the turn of the 20th century. I mean, I also think about, um, you know, the, the um, waves of immigrants um, coming through into America and maybe taking some of the jobs, taking some of the jobs that maybe were previously um, given to people who had been here longer. Um, I also think about, and I think she says this in the book about, you know, as things enter into, um, you know, not like farming or like agrarian work, but more industrialized work where as she puts like, you're punching in the clock, you're maybe doing a little bit less 
quote unquote, less manual labor than men in previous generations. And so this, this idea of um, masculinity as defined by provider and provi that, that role of provider is now changing, right? Or what that looks like changes. And I guess apparently that was caused for a lot of crisis. Um, and then coupled with, um, as Matt said, you know, with the prohibition, um, and I don't know very much about the prohibition, but from what I do understand, it was sort of like multiple different groups of people were in favor of the prohibition, but it was sort of for different motivations. So some people saw it as a scourge of men where it was drunk men and uh, husbands and fathers were sort of neglecting their families. And so we need to clean this up. Other people did see it very much tied to immigrants, right? It's these like, you know, lazy, uh, lawless, immoral immigrants who are using alcohol. So it was sort of like these multiple uh, groups kind of came together on this very specific issue to make it happen, um, which obviously wasn't permanent. It, it is interesting, um, just as a side note, the immigrants in America has always played the role of the boogeyman, whatever that needed to look like. So whether the immigrant was too lazy and mooching off the government or the immigrant was taking your job, the immigrant has been cast in a wide variety of roles over against whatever white masculine fears are. Um, I think we're uh, circling around something. Um, I see a couple of questions here, just real fast. Um, uh, uh, Kate asked, Victorian, what is Victorian Christianity? Is that Wesley's era? I, I would assume the, the Victorian era is just like the lifespan of Queen Victoria, right? Which is like late... 19, uh, late, late 19th century and Wesley was 18th century. So it would have been, it would have been post Wesley, but it certainly would have been, I think during kind of the, um, original, it, you would have had a lot of the second great awakening effects still in play. And those were, uh, often quite emotional, like a lot of emotional emphasis there. Um, so that's certainly, I mean, be, because part of this is like, wow. you want to trace this, like yeah. notice what she says, um, unable to shake that Christianity had less than a masculine feel. Many blame the faith itself. I want to come back to that, or at least the feminization of Victorian Christianity, which privileged gentility, restraint, and emotive response to the gospel message. So what you have in that era especially when you have like a great uh, second great awakening emphasis, like still sort of spilling over is you have very much like this emotional response to the gospel is sort of evidence that the Holy spirit was real and active in the moment of your conversion. So that carries over, particularly when you tie it to like what Matt was talking about, like you have like these holiness movements, uh, the charismatic movement is kind of, picking up and gaining some steam and around these eras. And so like, particularly this is all seen as a, like that movement is a response to like sort of British, non-emotional religion. <laughs> and then now you have this really excitedly emotional religion, which now like Americans against that. 
I do want to tie a couple of other things here, but I, I want to I want to see if you all bring them out. I, I think there were a couple other folks who were going to say something. Jay, that's what you were about to say something. Maybe I didn't. Um, Tom, with the immigration that started in the early 1800s, from um, can you hear me? Yep. Um, from Ireland first, and then the people from Spain and um, Italy, and um, they brought a lot of Catholicism into the United States, which had before been mostly Protestant. Yeah, you certainly have a, you have a very strong shift in multiple ways um, of what American Christianity is defined at in this, as in this era. And I don't think we can underestimate certainly the anti-Catholicism and the fear of sort of being overrun by Catholics and immigrants, many of the immigrants who are Catholics. The other component right. to the immigrants is to keep in mind that even immigrant men were not considered real men. Okay, so you have in the early 20th, 20th century, you have this influx of immigrants where even the men are not technically like, however, White men are defining masculinity. Immigrant men cannot reach that threshold. Two, you're within a few decades of emancipation and the end of the Civil War. Black men were not allowed to be men either. So when we say that there is a mass, when, or when, when she says that the early 20th century Christianity had a masculinity problem, that it was recognizing, and it was particularly tied to, she ties it just to like Victorian Christianity, but I think it's also a reaction of these larger movements, uh, that these larger social changes that are happening, where there is questions about who gets to determine who a man is and who a woman is. Okay. Um, because if black men are men, then why don't we let them vote, right? Why don't we get them rights? But they're not men. If immigrants are, if immigrant males are men, then they need to be able to vote. But we don't want to give them the right to vote. So we will define them as non-men. And we will, def we will, we will define ourselves over against whatever categories we place on them. Right. What else is happening? I guess I was also going to say, like, uh, it's a, known as a progressive era. So, like, there becomes labor laws, there becomes uh, sanitation becomes a thing, um, some of those aspects. And so, uh, that, like, parks. And so, there's also the sense of, like, hey, you want to put labor laws or constraints upon how many hours you work a day. Like, and oftentimes men were seen as the, the workforce. So therefore, um, like putting constraints on it is like saying like, hey, you can't live up to this expectation. So yep. you're not a male either. So like, that was kind of another thing that was kind of going on. Mm -hmm. And tied to all that is class too, right? Well, even poor white men weren't necessarily men, okay? 
because they couldn't protect their families. They couldn't provide for their families. They couldn't buy property. Okay, I still think we're missing one major component. World JD? War One. World War One. The okay, Spanish World, flu. Yep, we've yeah. Unpack that. How did that affect masculinity? Well, certainly the uh, destruction of male male bodies, right, on the mm-hmm. battlefield and in the hospital beds, and yeah, um, not being able to protect even just the stability of civilization, mm-hmm. much less your families when this unknown whatever comes into your community and wipes it out. Yeah. Um, I think that probably was a big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. Yes. And something specifically gets... E- Something is fomenting before World War One, but really takes off after World War One. What's what am I looking for? It's one that it's easy to miss. Go ahead, Kate. Are you talking about consumerism? No, I'm talking about feminism. Women are given the right to vote. Uh, Yeah, the vote. Susan B. Anthony. All of that. And 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 it and and it's tied to, right, that you have. You have at the end of the 19th century, women start advocating for their rights. So you have what's called first wave feminism. First first wave feminism is coming out of the church. It's highly tied to women's preaching, to uh, particularly some of these holiness uh, movements. Women are being called to preach. Women are serving in the church. You have... um, not, I mean, not every first wave feminist was a Christian, but you have a lot of our Christian women who were like advocating for social rights, for example, were also preaching the gospel. Okay. So that this is coming out of the 19th century into the 20th century, where then World War I happens. The boys go off the war, not all of them come back, and women are starting to. Like they have already been carrying many of the burdens of their society and their family for a good long time anyway. And now they're saying, when are we going to get represented in the government for this? Like, when do we get representation? When do we get to vote? When, you know, um, and so all of this, the, the thing that people don't often realize is that so much of this is tied to a particular egalitarian reading of the Bible and Christianity for first wave feminism. The first wave feminists that began to think structurally about um, how society could look differently. I think Matt earlier mentioned the social gospel. This is all tied up in like feminist rhetoric too. The social gospel is thinking structurally about how people who are left out of the system can now be included in the system or the system needs to be included. Okay. In, In other words, all of these questions about who, what is a man? What does it mean to be a man? Who gets included in the category of man? All of these things are coming to a head in the early 20th century and forcing conversations so that there is kind of this crisis of masculinity in the sense that these old categories of protector, provider, are all breaking down. And also 
those people at the same time are saying, we don't know what it means to be a man, but this Victorian idea of a man of being genteel and restrained and emotive uh, is not a view, is, is, is a feminized masculinity. Okay. And that becomes a concern for them. Real men don't show emotion. We're rough. We're not genteel. You can see in it also like a little bit of a class response, right? Who gets to be genteel and restrained? The wealthy do, right? When, when your privilege and your job is not being, quote, taken by an immigrant, you can be restrained. So we have also this, and this is why evangelicalism has for a long time been somewhat appealing to lower middle class and poor people. Because the attempt has been, I think it does it wrongly, but the attempt has been in some ways to give poor white men dignity. Okay. I think they've gone about it the wrong way, but it is, but the language behind that is still patriarchy, right? It's still patriarchy. But just understand sort of the full force of like the historical setting that forces this sort of in, in their mind, this crisis of masculinity. Poor white men did not feel uh, like their masculinity was appreciated when black men and immigrant men got to vote and work their jobs. And you still see some leftovers of that rhetoric today. Okay, so I opened this up. Anybody else? What's next? I kind of joined late, but I have a question as it relates to like the reckon, like the tension of Christian virtue and this redefinition of masculinity. Um, when she notes on, you know, like, us, are we still in chapter one? Mm-hmm. Or, yeah, when she notes on page 17, um, for American Christians, the challenge was to reconcile this aggressive new masculinity with traditional Christian virtue. Um, and that, and she gives some examples of like how that's reconciled, but I just was a little bit curious about um, where the, gra- was there much grappling with that and, and where was the kind of, uh, yeah, just the grappling with how in conflict this is with sort of the God, like the gospel. Mm. Anybody have any thoughts to Bridget's question? Well, I would, I guess I would say that there is the social gospel on one side Mm -hmm. and then the rise of biblical literalism is also like in the same, the same time period. So it's the pushback. So you see a more of like, how do we interact in loving our neighbor on the one side? And then the pushback comes in, everything in the Bible is historically accurate or true. And so you see this tension of theological lenses on that front, which affects just the overall arcing social, because it was the social gospel included all of these things as saying like, hey, these are good things. Whereas the, the literalism is obvious, it was the polar opposite saying this is the opposite, which a lot of like Southern uh, 
like lower middle class women who were there grapple onto this theological lens. So you see things like um, a resurgence of like the like the Southern Baptist tradition oftentimes would be very much merged with these type of groups uh, among other other traditions, but they very much gather um, alongside of these values. I, I do think that was the thing that surprised me. Uh, and there were a couple points that I just, I did not know things that she brought up, but how complicated some of this conversation was originally. That, that like, for example, that the evangelicals originally, was it World War I uh, or World War II that evangelicals originally stood against? And they were like, no, no, no. But then after the war, like everything flips. It was like the, the more progressive side was like for the war and then the evangelicals were against it. And then afterwards, like their attitudes flipped. So in other words, Bridget, I think what we do, I think we do have challenges to each of these, particularly early on. And even to a degree within evangelicalism, there are challenges to this growing hyper-masculinity and this growing restricted definition of masculinity. But eventually those voices are going to be shoved out. Those contrary voices are going to have to come to define themselves differently. Right, because then she even, like, she basically talks through um, Graham the entire chapter and the, the influence of, I guess, powerful white men in the evangelical space at the time. And uh -huh. I have an electronic copy, but basically she talks about, like, he had to, like, before his conversion, he had to, like, or he thought of religion as that, like, very emotive, very, like, passive, um, well-suited for old people and girls, but not for a real he-man with red blood in his veins, according to her. Um, and so in his own conversion narrative, then he drew on both athletic and military metaphors to make perfectly clear that his faith did not conflict with his masculinity. Mm -hmm. Jesus was no sissy. He was a star athlete who could become your life's hero. The Christian life was total war and Jesus was our great commander. Graham's Jesus was a man, every inch a man, the most physically powerful man who had ever lived. In the interest of saving souls and for the success of his own career, it was incumbent upon Graham to prove that Christianity was wholly compatible with red-blooded masculinity. So just the, going back to last week's conversation, that like whole embattled, like yes. need to prove yourself. I think that narrative just comes back up again because clearly if this, if Christianity is something that you, that the men at this time think that they need to build their life on, it also has to, it can't rock the boat too much in terms of, um, just like societal roles and how they perceive themselves and what their purpose is. And so you can't have a meek and gentle Jesus teaching them that that is what their, where their strength lies when their whole kind of purpose at the time is to provide and protect and be this kind of no emotion symbol of strength. So I guess that's one thing that I think could respond to that a little bit. Yeah, and I, I think your reference to the embattledness, in order to understand this movement, you have to understand exactly what Lauren brought up that she said last week, the embattled nature of evangelical masculinity. 
to be in a battle is always to define yourself over against the other side. And that will take you to extremes that you would not otherwise go to because you have to define yourself against what you perceive to be the opposite's extremes. So for every step of moral buffoonery that this movement will take from the 20th century until the present, we have to understand it. We all have to agree with it. We have to understand it as a reaction to a perceived enemy on the other side, whether that's feminism, whether that's black folks, whether that's immigration, whether that's educated people, every step is a step of trying to define masculinity over against the perceived enemy. And at every step, there will be difficult conversation, but eventually uh, people who are opposed to getting more extreme will be elbowed out of the You know, Tom, that brings to mind, um, and I think it's David Brooks, the political commentator commentator that makes this point of the difference between community and tribalism and how like community is defined by our common interests and what brings us together. And tribalism may not be the exact word he uses, but like this idea of being defined by your common enemy. Um, and so I think that 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 seems very key to what happened in this movement to that entire definition by your common enemy. Yeah, yeah, that's good. I wanted to say something about Graham. Actually, I learned so much about Billy Graham. In these, hey, these, I'm gonna these I'm gonna chapters. go I'm gonna go put out a fire. Go ahead, Gina. You guys talk about okay. yourself. I'll be right back. That's fine. Um, I learned a lot about Billy Graham in these chapters. So I maybe want to read like a biography or something because. Um, but the thing that struck me in this chapter is on page 24 in the print version is that photograph of him speaking. And I, I guess, like, I've only ever seen photographs or video of Billy Graham as an old man because, because he's an older guy. I, I don't think I'd ever seen something like this when he was young. And I found this photograph just captivating. Like, I, I, and it was just a good reminder to me that, like, like when I look at this photograph, like, I... I want to hear what he's saying. And this is like however many decades old. I, I, he was clearly like such a dynamic speaker. And it was just, it was a good reminder to me because I feel like, um, you know, a lot of this, um, what we now call evangelicalism is just so, I find really frustrating and really confusing. Like it's, it's so limiting to men even, like because you have to fit this very narrow definition of manhood. Like how can people think this is appealing basically? And like I said, it was a good reminder to me that I think him and his message about masculinity and Christianity was clearly like meeting this need. It was, it was filling some purpose and clearly very popular, right? Um, because of the power and influence he's able to have. And it was just, yeah, it was just a helpful, like a shift of perspective for me um, to think about what, a, first of all, what an incredible speaker he must have been um, starting from a very, very young age and how clearly his message resonated with lots and lots and lots of people. And what need is that message meeting or, or trying to meet? Um, and how can I better? I guess empathize with that <laughs> and not be so cynical about it. It was a good, it was a good uh, little 
little reminder. It is a, it is an important observation to realize that like the eventual leaders of this movement, uh, whether that begins with Billy Graham, Billy Sunday, or any of the other ones that are going to follow, they particularly because evangelicalism's power is so dispersed, it's not in a single denomination, for example, right? That means that the people who sort of rise to the top as the representatives of the movement are people who represent what the what the populace wants. So it's 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 I, I'm reminded of one of the prophets saying, you know, like the prophets tell lies and the preachers don't tell the truth, and my people love it this way, right? That the leaders are the ones who, or the, the people are creating these leaders. Billy Graham is absolutely meeting some kind of need. He is what they wanted. Yeah, Billy Graham really dominates these chapters. Mm -hmm. And I mean, obviously he is really a formative figure in uh, American evangelicalism and even like one of the most influential figures of the 20th century probably. But um, I would just be curious to hear some people uh, share like their impressions of Billy Graham, like before reading this book or like growing up, how they were, how they thought of Billy Graham, how they were taught to think of Billy Graham. Um, I don't know. I'd just be interested to hear what perceptions of him are yeah, and like what kind of background those of you who got to see him during his heyday? I know for me, Billy Graham through that era, for me, and I didn't research, I wasn't well read on it, but he embodied what I thought was the ideal American pastor. Mm -hmm. I mean, to me, he embodied what the church was standing for. And I mean, I thought he was great. Reading this book, I'm like, well, I'm going to have to go back and rethink <laughs> all of that. But at the time, he was the embodiment of what I thought the, everybody wanted yep. within the church. Yeah, I agreed with G Gina. I would love to see read a Billy, a Billy Graham biography, but one that's done with a critical eye. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel like he is just kind of held up on that pedestal in Christianity as just, you know, the it guy that um is just kind of unimpeachable to an extent like i mean i have heard these criticisms of him with politics and supporting nixon and things but like you know people are also really quick to point out that part about how he wouldn't preach to segregated crowds and this you know does not really treat him with those kid gloves mm -hmm. that he was more like that Billy Graham did nothing of use to the civil rights movement and sometimes like stymied it um, or kind of, you know, put a damper on it amongst his followers and didn't really mm. do anything to support it. Um, but yeah, I mean, I also like grew up hearing of him as just kind of the, um, like the ultimate in being a gentle, um, but gentle, but strong, like just having your morals in the right place kind of 
Christian. Mm. Yeah. Uh, uh, Rebecca, you made a good point. Like he was held up as like this ideal masculine figure. Um, and yeah, we even have a rule named after him, which was well, telling, right? Because one, made a one... point to say like out and he kept fit and mm -hmm. like he was he knew his demographic that he was appealing he was to. already tall and good looking yes yes exactly. so he and knew somebody it. mentioned somebody mentioned his rule where he wouldn't be in the room alone with women i mean even that had a resurgence with pence um being right. in such a high position and adhering to that rule um yeah that's interesting. That's that's like the the biggest context I ever have of Billy Graham. <laughs> and the and the larger the larger thing here though, right, is that the purity rules are yes for the quote protection of the man, particularly the male leader. But remember what she said: the purity rules was were in particular tied to a definition of America over against the Soviet Union, right? That. By be that that the Soviets were a godless nation, and that American masculine purity would be sort of evidence of American holiness. So, like, yes, absolutely. Like, let's certainly have this conversation about like individual man. And by the way, I am referencing page. Um, page 26 for anyone. Yeah. Uh, in Being an example of holiness, that also strikes me as like a very Billy Graham thing, like to lead your life, lead your life in, ex in an example, like by not cussing and stuff like that, that would like right. be seen as like evidence of God's goodness or something like that. Like that seems very Billy Graham to me. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. If this were a book study on Billy Graham, uh, man, we could go into some stuff <laughs> uh, about the impact of all of that. Um, OK, any, anything else that stood out to you from this chapter? By the way, I am going to have to be done at eight because I have another meeting after this. So um, usually I'll stay around afterwards, but I got to be done at eight. I, I have something to bring up. I, I think one thing I learned again from these early chapters was I mean, again, I learned a lot about Billy Graham and how influential he was in so many areas of the highest offices in the United States. I mean, starting with like Eisenhower in the 50s, and I found mm. that fascinating. And I, I made this note of like, I wonder if popular or evangelical or, or mainstream Christianity has ever been divorced from nationalism. Like, I, I tend to think of that as a newer phenomenon but reading this it's like it, it seems like from very 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 early on this has been having an influence on the highest you know offices of our land which is so discouraging <laughs> it's so discouraging and but it was it was really interesting to me and eye-opening to me um about yeah like this kind of from the beginning of this or not the beginning of of american christianity but just of I don't know, modern or, or popular Christianity or the rise of radio yeah. and television along with Christianity. Yeah. Like from the beginning, this was these high profile Christians and Christian leaders were directly tied and directly influenced to presidents and other influential people. And I found that 
really interesting. There is a, a yeah, go ahead, Kate. Yeah, there's another organization that they mentioned, the family, I think it is, that, um, you know, that started the prayer breakfast and stuff like that, which I thought was like a much later thing. I don't know if you've seen that, the Netflix, many, the fellowship. Thank you, Gina, the fellowship. And there's a documentary on Netflix about a docuseries. Um, and it's kind of like tied to Young Life kind of, and like Bob Goff and people like that. Um, but yeah, it is just like connecting all these powerful people in the name of Jesus and I didn't realize it was so old, but it definitely goes in with all this like Billy Graham kind of stuff. There's a there's a foundational assumption that is shared by everyone, almost every every self-identifying Christian in the history of America that precedes the American problem. Right. So like it's and and that is that the that there is such thing as a Christian government and that the Christians should have power in the government that that foundational assumption has been in place for 1700 years, at least, if not before that. And the Reformation, there was an opportunity to question that assumption, and very few did. Anybody know the groups that actually question that? The groups that question the assumption that Americans should have, or, or, or that Christians should have governmental power? I know Jay The Anabaptists, that. probably. The Anabaptists, yes. Uh, the the Mennonite for it. Yeah, the Anabaptists, the Mennonite tradition, and there have been Quakers. The Quakers, yes. Um, their fundamental critique of both the Protestants and the Catholics is the presumption that Christians should have cultural power. And for that reason, like people like know like the Mennonites and the Anabaptists primarily for their pacifism. But that's because we're defining the, Ana, the Anabaptists and the Mennonites according to Protestant interests. They are not primarily uh, pacifists. They are primarily, they see themselves as interested in following Jesus who did not have political clout, right? Jesus certainly had political things to say, but he did not seek office. He did not seek political power. And so they would say that their disinterest in violence is an overflow first of that. Um, so what we have in this is that, yes, Billy Graham is sort of like hyping up this stuff and he's using this stuff and he's seeking to gain political clout, but his assumption there isn't any different than the majority of Christians. for years. It's just going to take a little bit of a different turn. And so you're right. Like Christian nationalism has always been there. I was thinking recently about, um, I was reading a new book, The Dawn of Everything, on like the history of humanity. And one of the things it was saying was like, you had these Christians in like uh, pre-modern era Britain, for example, who would like talk about the monarchy as if it were God-given, right? This is God, the monarchy is God's gift to the world, right? They were talking about it the same way Christians today in America talk about democracy, right? George Bush, democracy is God's gift to the world, right? Uh, and like the thing to realize is that so much of this, whether it's masculiniz masculinization or Christian nationalism or whatever, so much of this is just a projection of the culture's values, not an inherent like grappling, gra grappling with the gospel itself, which would actually encourage us to give away.
Well, and then going into the beginning of chapter two a little bit, not to go too far, but just that, like, that I didn't know that, like, one nation under God and, like, in God we trust in the nation's currency is, like, literally in the last, like, 70 years. Yep. yep. Like, it's new. And the fact that, like, we have children from, like, I don't know, kindergarten up say these things every day, like, as some sort of, like, almost like religious creed to an extent like and then you talk to people from other countries and they're like like that that is not even a thought in their mind the fact that they would like pledge their allegiance to their country on a daily basis five days a week like the fact that that's that new and that it's like just like has sort of that like religious type undertone to it in the sense that like we have the freedom of religion, but we're also going to assert Christianity in our, in our rhetoric affirmed by the government. I don't know. It just look at Lauren getting woke over here. (laughs) (laughs) It just rubs me the wrong way. No, I mean, but, but really, I mean, this, this is one of the values of reading a book, a book like this, right. Is that we start to notice things that maybe we hadn't noticed before that we realize like in some ways we've been propagandized to accept certain things as unquestionable truth. And, uh, oh yeah, in Texas, I'm not surprised. Uh, Oh yeah, the Texas pledge as well, yes. Yeah, Texas is the America of America, of course. (laughs) So like, I mean, that's the thing, right? This is the value of these things is to learn oh like to have this outside voice that says huh yeah you you've been misled for a long time in fact in the pledge and things like that you've been ritualized not just propagandized you've been ritualized into accepting a different religion other than christ and him crucified it's interesting Um, to me that and it hints on this on page 19 to go back that this new fundamentalist approach is such an individualistic approach. Like it's about personal sin and personal conversion. And then it turned into this national like story. And I don't know how, I mean, obviously this book is talking about how we got there, but it seems like at the fundamental, it's like, Oh, this is a personal thing. But while we're at it, let's just force this on other people and convert other people while recognizing it's still very personal. Like, I don't, that, that makes no sense to me, but it is, it is entirely personal and individualistic up until the point that it calls into question white male straight power. Then once those privileges are questioned, then, and only then does it become something more than individualistic, which is why when an issue that doesn't affect white straight men comes up, Evangelicals are like, well, you know, whatever. Like, okay, they don't, they don't care. But once there is a threat to white, political, we're not political. We're not political. But once then white straight male power is called into question, then all of a sudden, well, we got to, we have to save America. Like, it's our job to save America. Okay, so like, it, it, it would be interesting, I think, to just look at even your news cycle. whether that's, and I don't, I don't want to get super partisan here, but like, just pay attention to how the news cycle works. The stuff that gets reported in certain stations is stuff that is of interest to white male power. 
outside of that, it's just individualistic beliefs and convictions. So there is a weird, in American Christianity, there's a weird amalgamation of individualism, consumerism, militarism, and, and whiteness, and masculinity. That Those things coming together. Which is yeah. part of the reason why I think we see a massive pushback, for example, with, with Colin Kaepernick. Oh, yeah. It's, it's exactly this exact idea of that pushback, right? Like that nationalism sense, like he's calling... He's saying no, no longer will we follow like this just blatant, like ritualistic approach to the pledge and stuff like that. Yep. yep. It's it's I think it is fundamentally the reason why same-sex relationships are such a threat to evangelicals. Because if masculinity is defined a certain way, particularly as men having power over women. And what do you do when a man treats another man the way men treat women? This causes category confusion that calls into question masculinity. This is, this is I think, the fundamental root of evangelical homophobia. It is not really about the Bible, because if it were about the Bible, we'd be talking about classism and wealth. We would not be talking about gay folks, because the Bible don't mention it. Okay. So that's like a segue into something else I saw on. So just brief on page thirty-one, it talked about um, different uh, men coming together and how they kind of roped in John Wayne into this, and that was kind of an unlikely um, sort of person to align with. And it said, um, yet despite his rough edges, Wayne would capture the hearts and imaginations of American evangelicals. The affinity was not based on theology, but rather a shared masculine ideal. And I, I circled that shared masculine ideal because I, it just kind of dawned on me, like men ultimately have to decide what they want masculinity to be, right? Because I mean, there's so many, uh, I, I have some ideas, but like ultimately, you know, this is something that, that like men, men have to grapple with it and has effects for all of us. But like men are the ones that are kind of reinforcing this ideal with each other, if that makes sense. Mm. Um, I, I'm not saying that other people don't reinforce that message too, but this this idea that men have to be a certain way is, is, is quite narrow even today. And um, we see some roots of it maybe at least in the Christian in the Christian um, realm. But yeah, I just go back to, yeah, men have to decide what, what they want masculinity to be and, and what they're gonna accept as masculinity to be because ultimately I think men are the best reinforcers for other men <laughs> about what they'll tolerate and not tolerate, at least in our current society. Yeah, I, I'm. I'm. Uh, I am sort of reading this John Wayne section as a preparation to talk about Trump. This is this is what I think she's doing with John Wayne. I mean, she's going to say like, "This is a weird guy to align with. He has like multiple fares, wasn't born again, like, uh, but." Uh, it's, it will become a piece of the machinery that eventually leads to Trump. It was never about theology. It was especially where there's that line about like his like brash manner was yeah. like not just part of the appeal, but probably like it wasn't just, it wasn't despite his like brash, yep. uh, like kind of crude demeanor. It was 
in a large part because of it. Yep. Yep. That's right. Um, and so I think even in the next chapter, like that's, that's where my mind goes, just like reading all of this. Uh, combining resurgent nationalism, this is on page 31, below the quote that Gina had, combining resurgent nationalism with moral exceptionalism, Americans divided the world into good guys and bad guys. The Western offered a morality tale perfectly suited to the moment, one in which drug and hero resorted to violence to save the day. I think, uh, whereas that was playing out on the screen, by the time you get to Trump, that exact thing is playing out on the screen in the newsroom every day, right? It's not in a movie, but it's happening in the newsroom. It's happening in the political office. The good guys and the bad guys are being divided up. And you don't want in that situation a guy who asks for forgiveness. You want a guy who insults the opponent and defines himself against a guy who, in Trump's words, is a winner. Okay. So again, Trump is not an anomaly. Trump is exactly what this movement has always been about. Okay. And Tom, I just wanted to say, like when you talked about the that we've been propagandized, like what she has to say about the Christian Booksellers Association and the ways in which they even like gave loans to set up these bookstores. I mean, I don't know a tiny town in Arkansas that doesn't have a Christian bookstore. And I had no idea that that this is why, you know, that there was like an intentional organization to spread this literature. And that that helps me make sense of so much uh, that seems mysterious about like what silo are people living in, you know, yep. and, and people who kind of like grew up in the same tradition that I did, but maybe never their experiences never took them out of the silo in any way or something, right. you know, that's right. So, and, and, and that's the thing, right? Like their experiences never took them out of the silo, but they also chose their silo. It's, it is this weird combination that people are oppressed by the situation they're in, but they also create the situation. Does that, does that make sense? This, this is what I think she's getting at. Like, this is bad. The, Toxic masculinity, the way evangelicals define masculinity, is bad for evangelicals. It's actually hurtful and unhealthy to them. And yet they also continue to perpetuate their own oppression. One of the ways the they do that. Healthcare. Right. One of the ways they do that is by controlling the means of knowledge through Christian bookstores. <laughs> this is why. This is why CRT in Texas and many other states is called into question right now, not because of its intellectual virtue or lack thereof. That's not even on the table. CRT is a threat to white masculine power. And if we can control the knowledge, we can reinforce white masculine power. So that just got played out in like Lifeway, right? This is why Lifeway was removing Rachel Held Evans' book not because anybody was intellectually engaging with it in a meaningful way. This is why Lifeway was not, uh, you know, uh, selling Beth Moore's books at the end, even though it was like she was like probably single-handedly revived the whole thing, okay? Um, and so like this is, this is you know, and, and Eva can probably tell us more about how the bookstore world works, um, but... <laughs> By the way, Eva uh, is a partial owner of Novel Bookstore here in Memphis. Uh, get your books from there. 
Yes, um, buy often for all your Christmas needs. <laughs> uh, they, have, they have this book and many other, including Rachel Held Evans' new book. Thank you. <laughs> so to me, masculinity is this framed right now is really almost a synonym for control. I mean, you look, a, a man is masculine. It means he's in control. If you take the masculinity away from him, you take his control away and nobody wants to lose control or give up control. I think a lot of it's tied straight into control forever. All of it. Yeah, somebody asked on Twitter yesterday, um, if you could change one thing about Christian history, what would you change and why? And my answer was patriarchy. Because if you take away the masculine desire to control other people, you get rid of abuse of women. You get rid of the domination of women. You get rid of also homophobia, which is rooted in patriarchy, and you get rid of racism which is rooted in some men are more men than other men. So you get rid of Christian patriarchy, which is exactly what the value of this book is. It's exactly why when you go to togetherforthegospel.com, they've got endless numbers of books purportedly arguing with a great historian who wrote this, and they're trying to show why her arguments are problematic, but they're doing a terrible job at it, and they're being mocked. Because what they are fundamentally about is propagandizing evangelicals and others with the gospel of patriarchy. And here's my last thing. You cannot build a religion of patriarchy on the back of a man who was crucified and <clears throat> penetrated by the toxic, the toxic masculinity of the Roman Empire. Jesus defines masculinity completely differently by weakness, by humility, and by self-denial. And that is the gospel. Friends, I have to go. I super appreciate you all. I will, um, in the future, I'll still stick around for 15, 20 minutes afterwards, but I have to have a uh, committee meeting that is going to decide the uh, when my church is finally going to get this meeting. So, um, Kate, I think you're in that meeting too. So, all right. Thank you, friends. Thank you. Be prepared to talk about chapter two next week. So, what for next week? Chapter two and two. three. Go ahead and two do and two three. and three, but we'll at least do two. Okay, great. Thank you. Bye, folks. Thanks, Tom. Thanks.